I want to begin this morning by asking those of you that were here two weeks ago on January 1st, we talked about resolving to lean on the Lord. We talked in depth about what that looks like within families or within households or between roommates or between a mentor and disciple. And I talked about deciding once and for all whether or not you would lean on Jesus and follow in his desire to be core to your life. And I want to ask you, I don't want anybody to raise their hands or anybody to stand up and, you know, yeah, I did it. just want you to think in your own mind and heart how many of you actually did anything about it? How many of you went out of here and it left your brain, left your heart, and you're just now remembering? For those of you that desire to make your household a place where worship is done and it's done consistently, we have some books in the back if you haven't seen them already. They're called Family Worship, and it's the book I referenced. It's a little short pamphlet, really. Um, But read through those. Don't just take one and put it on your shelf and feel like you're holy because you got one. Read it understand it, and implement it. I ask all these questions not to shame you, but to bring godly conviction that God's grace does not leave us the freedom to do as we please. What God's grace does is it brings us the freedom to do as He pleases, against our flesh. And I say all this because what I want to share with you today is this fact. To be a Christian To be a Christian is to be under the reign of Jesus. Now, I want to accomplish three things here this morning uh, in, in holding up this truth. The first thing I want to do is I want to look at the broad context of the Bible and the context of Isaiah as it leads us to our passage today. The second thing I want to do is I want to look at the text that we're going to examine today, but I'm only going to glance off of it. We're going to cover it even more in depth next week as we go through chapters 11 and 12. But then the third thing I'm going to do is I want us to to gain eyes to see what it means for us in 2017. So we're going to do those three three things. Context, looking at the text, and then the application. Does that sound good to you guys? We all in? All right. We ready? Here we go. Open up to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 24. And I'm going to take you through a number of different pieces. We're not actually going to get to this until partway through the teaching, but that's where you can turn to. Now, the first thing I want you to think about in the context of this idea of the king, because this is what our text talks about today, is, is God as king, Jesus as king in our lives, is this fact. You can write this down. The world refused God's reign as king. If you remember months ago, we talked about this idea of covenant, and we talked about the idea of covenant between a king and the kingdom in which he reigned. And the covenant was basically that the king would provide benevolent reign and protection and care And then the people, their part of the covenant, their response would be, we will follow your law. In order for you to provide benevolent reign and care and leadership, we will abide by your law. This was how the entire ancient world was governed. It was called a suzerain treaty. You can go look it up on Google if you'd like. But this is how the people and the king would interact. And as we look throughout the story of God in the Bible, we see a recurring theme that God is faithful as our sovereign to initiate these covenants with mankind and we are faithless and brush them off as fast as we possibly can. So I want you guys to to think about this for a second. The cycle of rejecting God as king is the cycle throughout the Bible. First, there was the Garden of Eden, and God said, I'm going to reign through my sub-regent, Adam. He's going to be a priest and a king for me, and I'm going to reign through him. And what happened? We disobeyed. We broke the covenant, 
and we moved forward. And so God didn't leave us. He loved us. And so he pursued us and pursued us and mankind continued to rebel. And so finally he says, I can't deal with the rebellion anymore. Otherwise there will be no purity. So I will wipe out mankind and their sin and I will rule and reign again through a new subregion. His name is Noah. And you can see this in the Garden of Eden. What did he say? He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. That word subdue is a word of conquering in terms of a king. He said the same thing to Noah and he added some law to him. Okay, some, some law to it. Well, mankind screwed up again, and we went so far as to build, build a tower, create a new religion, place ourselves as king, and say we will be the ones that determine divinity. It's called the Tower of Babel, and it was the city of Babylon. And so God said, out of this mess, I'm going to covenant with one guy again, a guy named Abraham, and through his family, I'm going to bring the truth of my reign to the world. Well, what happened? They went down into Egypt. They stayed too long, even though God had a land for them prepared. And then he had to free them. He had to break them out. And that's the Exodus. So God frees them. And he, again, goes into a covenant agreement with Abraham and his family. Okay, Abraham's dead by this point. It's now Moses. He says, Moses, you will lead my people on my behalf, and we're going to be in a covenant. That's the whole Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Okay? And so, rather than responding by obeying his law. They go up into the land. God gives them conquest. They start to rid the land of these very perverse people that were doing things in complete disobedience of God. And what do they do? Do they obey? No. They reject God as king. And so the book of Judges ends with this statement. At this point in the timeline of the narrative of Scripture, we see Judges, and it says this twice at the end of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, the reality is, is without a king, we do what's what's right in our own eyes. Without a king, there is no law. Therefore, there is lawlessness in our lives. And this isn't a cause and effect statement as much as we would be led to believe here. It's not 100% no king, no obedience. In actuality, what this is saying is this is a timeline it's saying there will be kings to come, but at this point there is no law, and so there, there was lawlessness in the land. And so the kings would eventually come. Well, before the kings do, in that narrative, you guys know the story, how did the kings come about? Well, God initiates a man after his own heart, a man uh, that is named Samuel, and he is a priest. And Samuel jumps in right before the kings. You guys know the story? The people come along, and after one defeat by the Philistines, a little bit of trial and tribulation, they come to Samuel and they say, give us a king to reign over us like the nations around us. And Samuel pleads with them, and he says, no, guys, God is your king. What are you doing? God's the one that brought you up out of Egypt. What are you doing? Why would you want a king? And God says this to him. He says to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And this is the narrative. The grand narrative of Scripture is that God constantly pursues us to enter into covenant relationship with us. But the world refuses God as king. And even his own people do. So what is this idea of kingdom we keep talking about? We're Americans. We left a king. That is at the core of who we are. Remember early on we talked in the summary of what Isaiah was going to talk about. We talked about the definition of a kingdom. Kingdom is very simple. It's a king ruling a people. Everybody repeat that after me. A kingdom is a king ruling a people. 
You can't have a kingdom without these three parts. And so when you look at the Bible, what does it say? It says that the king is the Lord God Almighty. That his ruling is laws of righteousness and justice implanted upon the hearts of his people. And that those people throughout most of Scripture are the people of Israel and the people of Judah, but the New Testament, who are those people? Those people are the church. Those that choose to enter into covenant relationship with God Almighty, the King of the universe, living by his rules of righteousness and justice. And this is the story out of the Bible. So we come to this point in the narrative, and all of a sudden we say, okay, the people have refused God as king. Enter Isaiah. This is the point of the prophets. This is why they came. What Isaiah came to do is to say and to show that Judah refused God's reign as king. The people of Judah, the southern kingdom, that had been in long time, long-term rebellion against God, they had refused God as king just like the world around them. There was no difference. And so now let's zoom in and look at what we have covered throughout the themes of Isaiah. So we have the grand narrative. You guys got all that? Now we zoom in and we look at the narrative just in the people of Judah. And Isaiah comes to us and he starts to speak to us. And because we've been off a few weeks and you guys have icicles on the brain a little bit, I'm sure, like I do, I want to review Isaiah in the first 10 chapters that we've come to. The book of Isaiah is broken into an ongoing cycle where you see four different themes over and over and over again. I'm sure you've already felt that. We're repeating the same thing again, Isaiah. Yep, there's 66 chapters of it. And it's all necessary for us to understand the truth of God. And so we've had these glimpses into these four things that he shows us. There's four themes, and here they are. You can write these down. And this will help you. When you're reading Isaiah on your own, you can always tell what's going on by taking your text and looking at it through these four lenses. First, there's a theme of accusation of sin. Accusation of sin. Now, this isn't sin as we think about it in America. This is a different kind of sin, and we'll talk about that in a second. Second thing, the second theme is a call to repentance from that sin, to turn from that foolishness and pursue the wisdom of God. The third theme is that a purifying judgment, a purifying fire is coming in some form or fashion, and it's a warning. Okay, you don't want to repent? Well, realize that God in his justice will bring purifying judgment to bear. And then lastly, because he is such a good God, he doesn't leave us there He also has the fourth theme, the announcement of hope. These four themes are cycled over and over and over again in Isaiah, and with each new twist and turn, new cycle, because remember, they don't think linearly like we do in the Western world. They think in terms of cycles, okay? With each new circle and round and cycle, we get a better picture, okay? My wife loves puzzles. I do not, but she loves them. And it's so cool to watch her put puzzles together because she always starts kind of with the boundary, right? And so that was kind of chapters 1 and 2 of Isaiah. And then she'll find something that's part of the picture and she'll kind of build that and then she'll kind of place it a little bit and build another part. And then eventually the picture starts to fill in. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay? I I don't like puzzles, but I still know what that looks like. You guys know what that looks like? 
That's what Isaiah is. With each new round and new cycle through these themes, we get a bigger, broader picture of what's going on. Now, the accusation of sin throughout Isaiah, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not some of the things that we think of, watching R-rated movies and cursing and, and, you know, smoking and things that have become sins in the Western world. Throughout Isaiah, what the accusation of sin is, is the practicing of injustice, the living life for self, materialism, only worried about what your kingdom looks like and not the care for the poor, the widow, the fatherless. That's the accusation of sin. You've gotten so much into your world, your materialism, your life, and you've forgotten everyone around you that's oppressed that you are sinning by your omission of living life for those people. The call to repentance is to turn back to God's way of righteousness and justice, his laws of righteousness and justice. Righteousness is the correct relationship between you and God, you and man, and you and God's creation. And justice is the activity that brings that about. And then the warning of judgment, the warning of purifying judgment throughout Isaiah has been that Assyria and eventually Babylon will come to purify the people so that only those who are the righteous remnant will truly remain. And for that remnant that remains, there is an announcement of hope that God will not leave them in that pit of despair and death, but he will rescue them because a kingdom is coming in which his righteous remnant will remain. So throughout these first 10 chapters, this cycle is occurring again and again and again. And if you haven't caught it yet, you will as we continue through the book. And there's one odd metaphor that goes with these cycles. And bit by bit has given us these strange puzzle pieces that we can start to put together and we will see in fullness today and next week. I know I had you turn to Isaiah 10. Why don't you go back with me to Isaiah 4 and take a look at Isaiah 4 too. We're going to just go quick through a couple of spots here. Isaiah 4.2, in that theme of, of the announcement of hope, Isaiah says this weird phrase, in that day, the branch of the Lord, and, and the Hebrew word could also be rendered sprout, the sprout of the Lord, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. The sprout, the branch, what are you talking about, Isaiah? So we get this weird puzzle piece. And then we moved forward and we talked about in chapter 6 the vision of the coming king. The vision is God, of God as king. And you remember Isaiah there, he saw God and he cried out and said, I am a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. In other words, saying our hearts are broken because out of the mouth the heart speaks. And we are an unclean people, God. And so God does this weird act by where he sends a, a seraphim, a fiery angel with a hot coal and touches his lips. And all of a sudden, purification is given by God through an intermediary. Beautiful picture of the gospel. And then God says, I need to go send my message that I am the king. Who should we send, he says. And Isaiah says, I'm here, send me. So God says, okay, you're going to go out, and what you're going to tell the people is, they're in trouble. They're up a creek without a paddle. The purifying fire is coming, and there's nothing they can do about it. How many of you want that job? Anybody? Yeah, that sounds great. I want to be the bearer of bad news. That's awesome. Right? So he cries out, and he says to him, take a look at Isaiah 6, 11. He cries out to God, and he says, how long, O oh Lord? What is he asking? He's asking, how long will that purifying judgment go on? And we get another puzzle piece. And God says, 
until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And he ends with this odd phrase, the holy seed is its stump. Was Isaiah just an arborist? Like, what is up with these tree things? First a, a sprout and a branch, and now he's talking about chopping off trees, and yet out of a tree something's going to be a holy seed? What are you talking about? And he makes this point, he says, there's going to only be a tenth of the people left in the land. That tenth is the remnant of God that will be left after the purifying fire wipes out the wickedness of Judah. And so he cries out and says, how long? And God tells him. And then fast forward to Isaiah 10, 15. How on earth is God going to do this work of purifying fire? How is he going to fell these trees and chop them down? How is he going to do this massive destruction? And we see yet another puzzle piece in Isaiah 10, 15. Speaking of Assyria as the axe that the Lord will wield in chopping down the trees. It says, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? And the picture becomes clear. The result of this work of God using Assyria as an axe, look up at 1018. It says, the glory of his forest, Judah, and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Another puzzle piece. And we're left here in this odd state. You can almost hear the righteous remnant crying out. Crying out to God, asking if he is forsaking them forever, if he has cut them down forever, why is his purifying fire wreaking such havoc Why has he abandoned them while the axe is being wielded? The wicked people of Assyria are gaining ground. But look at what he says next. Where we left off last time, look at 1024. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts. And remember, guys, anytime you see LORD in all caps, in Hebrew it is the name Yahweh or Jehovah. It is our God's name. They're not sure which one it is, and so they substitute the Lord. And anytime you see God of hosts, Lord God of hosts, this is a name that means general of the armies of heaven. It is a warfare term. So here, God, as the general of the armies of heaven, is saying to the people that are being cut down, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod, and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end, and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat." Now, that last phrase, we're not totally sure what that means because of the fat. I'm not going to even try and break that apart. 
the Hebrew is a little bit unclear. But what he's saying in the rest of it is this. He's using all sorts of language. If you know the story of Gideon, if you know the story of the Exodus, he's using language and pictures from that to say, just like I freed you from the the hands of Midian, just like I freed you in the Exodus, I will free you again. Now, question for you. When he's talking here, is is he talking to individuals or to the broad people group of Judah? The people group. Are there individual Judahites that will be slain and in so doing, because they're disobedient and not repentant, will go to the fires of hell? Yes. Is there hope for them? No. Absolutely not. See, if we want to get universalistic and say, God is love and so he will save everybody, we completely misinterpret Scripture. When God says there is hope, there is hope for the people that are his. For those that are disobedient and have refused God as king, the world in general, who do not turn from their sin, there is no hope whatsoever. That is the truth of Scripture. And so, these trees that were chopped down, that were disobedient, there is no hope for them. But for the righteous remnant who stand in the midst and go, God, you are our king. We love you. We serve you. What is going on? For them, he brings hope. Because for them, the truth is, is that God will reign in the future. And there is no reason to think that you will be under the oppression of an enemy kingdom forever. And this is the hope that he gives them. So he continues on here, and he says this odd phrase of statements. Take a look at verse 28. He, meaning God through Assyria, has come to Ayath. He's passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They've crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lesha, O poor Anathoth. Madmanah is in flight, and the inhabitants of Gabim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion and the hill of Jerusalem. He's saying the army is coming. You can almost picture them going through these towns wreaking havoc, and Isaiah standing in Jerusalem is waiting for them, telling the people, here they come. They're at Michmash. They're moving on through Nob. Here they come. They're coming. God's axe is coming. Repent. Repent and turn to God. And he finishes with this statement, one more puzzle piece to the bigger picture. He says, Behold, God, the general of the armies of heaven, the Lord God of hosts, will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. Those who are arrogant against God, in other words, they will be brought to justice. And he finishes with, he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. God, in his purifying fire, is bringing an axe against those trees that stand lofty and arrogant against him. And the majestic one is the one who will do it. And he will bring them low and humble them. And so here we are. In the midst of Isaiah, having gone through the cycle of accusation of sin, call to repentance, warning of judgment, and we find ourselves once again, along with Isaiah, standing in the midst of destruction, wondering if there's any hope. How many of you have ever been to Mount St. Helens? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you have ever seen pictures of Mount St. Helens? Raise your hand. When the devastation came through Mount St. Helens, how many trees were left? 
None. That's a volcano, guys. Think about the maker of the volcano. Nothing was left in its wake. How many of you have been to Mount St. Helens recently? What you see in the distance, out of the gray in various spots, out of stumps, is this slight glimmer of green in the spring. And trees are starting to bud. Life is coming from the death. Those seeds that seemed underneath the surface, that seemed dead along with the rest of the trees, they're starting to bud. And what do they bring, the people that go there? They bring hope because they know that that forest will be rebuilt. And it will be rebuilt most likely healthier. Because out of the death, life comes. What hope do we have, Isaiah asks? Well, this is where we have to remember that chapter breaks didn't occur in the original writings. And in the Hebrew, the next word in chapter 11, verse 1, is the Hebrew word the. It means and. It's not in the ESV gets it wrong. It's not there. Most of the translations get it wrong. NASB says and, which is correct. And, he says, and there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and the faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, any of you who read the Bible before, some of these pictures are starting to jump out at you. One in particular, and we'll cover this a lot next time, is in the book of Revelation. Revelation, Jesus is pictured as the seven spirits of the church. Seven, count them, seven spirits. He's pictured as one who has a sword coming from his mouth. Notice, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. These pictures, these phrases are not to be taken 100% literally. There will be a sword coming out of his mouth? Won't that cut his tongue? No. It's talking about his authority as king. Revelation was written to persecuted Roman Christians. It wasn't meant to give you a Bible code to figure out which date the rapture was happening, guys. FYI. It was given to give hope to those persecuted Christians who are going, there's an empire that's destroying us. Where is our king? And the same symbolism and logic is used, the same pictures, to tell the Christians, you have a king and he reigns. He will reign on the earth. This is the hope that is given to Isaiah. Now, I'm going to go in depth in this in a way where I'm going to break the text down in chapters 11 and 12 next week. But today, what I want to do is I want to take this a little bit more textually, topically, and I want to speak to you what I see this section saying to us which is this. To be a Christian is to bring your life under the reign of Christ. To be a Christian is to bring your life under the reign of Christ. Now, I want you to understand, I prayed through this, thought through this, looked it over, prayed again, and I made the wording of this very particular. Because to say to be a Christian 
is to be under the reign of Christ speaks of some perfection that we automatically get to where we suddenly obey Jesus in everything and there are no problems. Does that exist? Not in this life. But what this life is, is a process of sanctification whereby when something is presented to us, either internally or externally, that is in conflict with the reign of Christ and his law of righteousness and justice, to be a Christian is to immediately, immediately bring your life under the reign of Christ. It's not to hem and haw and go, I know the Bible says that, but you know, it's 2017 and we're a little bit different now. You know, I, I know for most people they should follow that part of the Bible, but I just, you know, when we find that our life is in conflict with the law of God, we immediately act to bring our life under the reign of Christ. Now, this statement obviously should give you pause. Why? Well, before we dig into these five verses and why I see this as the message, I want to take you on a brief tour of Christian history. Now, for those of you that are history nerds like me, you're getting excited already. For the rest of you, just like that, you're probably yawning, right? Okay? Oh, here we go. Christian oh, history. Whew. Barely made it out of that class in high school. Okay? After the death of Jesus, well, let's start with the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus that's referred to over and over again, not only in the Gospels, but throughout the Bible, Jesus used this book massively to speak of what his ministry was. And he taught constantly a teaching called God's kingdom. It was at the core of everything he taught. And after the death of Jesus, this view of the kingdom transferred into this new Jewish sect known as Christianity, because it was still very Jewish at that point. And this idea of the kingdom, very much from Isaiah and elsewhere, but very much from Isaiah, transitioned into the church. Let me give you some examples from the book of Acts that you most likely have glanced over multiple times when you've read them. The first is here, Acts 20, 25. This is speaking, this is Paul speaking to the elders of Ephesus, and he's saying, I'm about to go to Rome to die, and I won't see you again. Notice what he says to them. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom, ha- whom I have gone about proclaiming what? Everybody say it. The kingdom We'll see my face again. Yeah, the kingdom, huh? The king. Jesus is our king. Guys, kingdom. He didn't say the gospel. He didn't say evangelistic effort to get you to raise your hand, say a prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. The kingdom has come. That's what he preached. That was the gospel. The kingdom has come. This is Paul. The guy who we turn to, who the reformers turn to throughout to say, it's all about grace that gets you saved to go to heaven. Well, yes, that's partially true. But what he preached was the kingdom. There was no other gospel to Paul. How about this? Whoops. Acts 28, 30 through 31. This is Luke speaking as a historian, speaking about the church. Paul, in Rome, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. And what did he tell them about? Proclaiming. The kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, our Savior. No, guys, the idea of Savior to Paul could not be disconnected from king. Remember, Christ, Christos, Mashiach in the Hebrew, what does it mean? Anointed king. I want you guys to get a new habit. 
I want you to, when you read in the Bible, I want you to say it out loud. And as you're saying it out loud, when you come to the word Christ, I want you to stop saying Christ, and I want you to start saying the anointed king. It will change the way you read the Bible. Let's read it again. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense, welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus, the anointed king, with all boldness and without hindrance. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. See, the reason this should give us pause is because this is pervasive throughout the church in the early days of the church. The word for kingdom in the Greek is the word basileia. The Roman government, when they started to give government buildings over to the church, you know what the church called those government buildings? Basilicas. Because they were where the kingdom of God dwelt. Unfortunately, it stopped right there for most people. I was joking with Michael beforehand in setup, and he walked back to the sound bins, and he had an early senior moment for a guy who's as young as he is. And he said, what did I come back here for? And I went, Jesus? And he said, not church. And then he said, well, most people think that Jesus is only at church. It's a very true statement. Is Jesus in your car when you're driving around town? And that person cuts you off. And you simply show them which finger you'd like to point them in a direction with. Is Jesus on your couch in your living room when you're cycling through Netflix and you're thinking, "Mm, should I watch this or not? Is Jesus standing there while you yell, yell at your spouse or berate your children in shaming them? Or is he only at church? See, this Western idea... The idea that came from the Roman church has been pervasive throughout the church and it's framed very much what we view as Christianity. And to some authors, it is all the way up until today that the Roman view of church has come. What am I talking about? Well, fast forward from Jesus' life about 40 years later to 70 AD. The Romans are sick of the Jews, and so they invade Jerusalem, destroy the temple, disperse the Jews, and... Because Christians were a Jewish sect, Christians become persecuted. 64 AD, the whole, almost the whole city of Rome starts to burn to the ground. Everybody says, it's Nero's fault. And Nero goes, no, it's their fault. And he points at the Christians, and all of a sudden, Christians become the scapegoat. So Christians are being beaten up, persecuted, dipped in hot wax, hung on light posts, and lit on fire. For 250 years, martyrdom and persecution is all that Christians know. It comes in, uh, depending on who you read, eight to ten giant waves of persecution against the Christians. And so for perhaps six generations, Christians are known as the bottom rung of society. They're called, literally, the haters of mankind because Christians will not engage in secular lifestyle because they are to be pure under the laws of righteousness and justice according to their king. So the Romans hate the Christians. And then one day, this guy shows up. He's one of the multiple emperors of the failing Roman Empire. His name is Constantine. Everybody say Constantine. And Constantine decides he wants to take over the empire and run it by himself. And so Maxentius, who's another emperor, and he clash in Rome on the river Tiber. And as the story goes, Constantine has this dream one night in his tent where he has Jesus Christ come to him and say, I'm going to empower you to take over the empire. And then supposedly the next day or days later, he's looking up in the sky and he sees this symbol that everybody thinks 
Uh, most people, when they hear this story, think it's a cross. It was actually a very odd Latin symbol, okay? It wasn't a cross. And it's the, the first couple of letters of the Latin word for, for Christ, for Jesus. And he hears this message that says, in the name of, or in this sign, conquer. And so he goes, ah, I'm a Christian. I'm going to conquer in the name of Jesus. And historians who interviewed him, who we still have writings from, said that what he said was, I really wanted to win the battle, so rather than going after all the pagan gods, I figured I'd kind of put my bets on Jesus. Now, at the same time, Constantine becomes also the high priest of this cult known as Saul Invictus which is the unconquerable sun. Any of you ever been to a Catholic church? You see the priest hold up that gold thing that looks like a sun and it's got the communion in it. Unconquerable sun. Okay? The birth of the unconquerable sun, December 25th. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Okay? And so Constantine becomes the high priest of the, the cult of the unconquerable sun and at the same time, he signs into law an edict called the Edict of Milan that makes Christianity the empire's religion. So he's the high priest of the unconquerable son and the high priest of the Christian religion. Now, whether or not he has truly been converted, I'll leave up to you and the historians. Everybody's been battling about it for centuries. I'm not going to figure it out myself. But I want you to think closely about this. For 300 years, for six generations, all Christians knew was death, destruction, torture, and secrecy. And suddenly you have somebody running for office, so to speak, who stands up and says... I'll be for you. I'm going to take away the persecution and I'm going to make your religion the state religion. How would you respond after six years of watching your great-grandparents, grandparents, parents get murdered and massacred? Would you hold him to accountability and say, this man does not seem like the one we need leading us? Or would you say what? Praise God that he has been put in place as our leader. Finally, Finally, someone who will stand for us. Does this sound familiar at all, present day? Rather than holding him accountable to the holiness and the laws of the king, we say, oh, at least this person will be for us. So far, the church had existed on leadership of elders, men of principle, whose sole call was to maintain the doctrinal purity of the church and hold the people in the church accountable to practical purity so that the glory of God could spread through their lives. But as we all know, when comfort lines up opposite against holiness, which will we bow to? We can either say, I will make you holy and it may cost you everything, which is what Jesus said. Or as most of our politicians tell us, I will make life prosperous and comfortable and you can still keep the name Christian so that when you die, you go to heaven. To many Christians, this was a direct intervention of God. And if you read the historians, especially the historian Eusebius, who was a church father, they believed the millennial reign had started. That Jesus had come through this man Constantine and had initiated the reign of God on earth. And so they opened their doors wide and suddenly mixture started to happen and the church started to evolve from a kingdom mindset to what we know today. Constantine became the emperor of the state and the church and the two were mixed. The pomp and riches of the empire became intertwined with the church and the priests of the Roman pantheon of gods became merged with the prophet and pastor of the Christians. The church became the puppet of the state. Items which we still have in place today, such as tax breaks for churches and pastors, became the norm, all in a bid to hold the church under the covering of the state. The quiet and humble worship services in homes were now moved to palatial government buildings. 
rather than the simplicity of the two pieces that were in the early church of the Word and the table. It was replaced by processionals that would go down aisles with men in robes swinging incense. That's how they would welcome the Caesar into a town. Humility, love, graciousness, repentance, forgiveness as hallmarks of Christianity were replaced with wealth, prosperity, success, and a high place within society. If you were truly a Christian, you were blessed and prosperous. And worst of all, the hope found in expectation of the coming kingdom of God was shelved and it was replaced with a Gnostic and Greco-Roman belief system that doesn't focus on living life today under the order of the king, but what happens at death, whether you go to heaven or hell. Yusto Gonzalez, one of the foremost historians of our day on church history, says this, No longer did Christians have to decide between serving the coming reign and serving the present one, which had become a representative and agent of the reign of God, supposedly. Beyond the present political order, all that Christians are to hope for is their own personal transference into the heavenly kingdom. Christian hope came to be relegated to the future life or to the distant future and seemed to have little to do with the present world. Religion tended to become a way to gain access to heaven rather than to serve God in this life and the next. The earlier notion that in the resurrection of Christ the new age has dawned and that by baptism and communion, the Eucharist, Christian became participants in the kingdom, that was abandoned and Christian hope was now limited to the individual's life after death. And churches became focused on people saying prayers in order to be saved to go to heaven when they die, as opposed to teaching them the reign of Christ in their life on this earth. He goes on later to say this, The narrow gate of which Jesus had spoken had become so wide that countless multitudes were hurrying through it, many seeming to do so only in pursuit of privilege and position without caring to delve too deeply into the meaning of Christian baptism and life under the cross. Does that sound like the Western church? Say a prayer, be saved, I guarantee you that you're going to get to heaven. Now, as far as discipleship goes and what it is to be a Christian, you'll figure that out, no big deal, read your Bible, pray, move on. That is the Western Christian church. That is the seeker-friendly movement of the giant mega churches that say, Our job is to get numbers of people in the building that pray a prayer. Our job is not to make Christians that live under the reign of Christ as their anointed king. So no longer was a Christian one who was under the reign of Christ. Now it was about what happened when you died. And, you know, I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. I, you know, did the thing when I was at youth camp. And so I'm I'm saved. I know I'm saved. It doesn't matter what I do now. I can fornicate. I can goof off. I can not tithe. I can not go to church. It doesn't matter. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. It's the state of the Christian church in America. To live life not under the reign of Christ. The Christian life became following Jesus only as one felt like it and when it was convenient to do so. But what I ask you is at the core of Scripture. To be a Christian is to be under the reign of Christ. To be a Christian is to live life bringing your life under the reign of Christ. Where do I get this from our text today? Let's take a look. Isaiah 11. 
And I'm going to go through this somewhat quickly. Because you'll notice the word king isn't even in here, but if you pay attention, it is. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Who was Jesse? Jesse was the father of David, the king after God's own heart. And because David could not do fully what God needed him to do to reign over his kingdom in the ways of God, he takes a step back to his father and says, I will bring a new king that will come from his lineage. And Jesus does. Jesus is the Davidic king. Look at verses 3 and 4. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge or rule by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. There's this idea of the ruler, the one who's judging. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Deciding, judging, this is speaking of a ruler. And so we know that this is speaking about a messianic king, an anointed king that would come and would rule in in the ways of God. But what I want to pay attention to for these last few minutes here is I want to focus you in on the character of the king. And remember, what is a kingdom? A kingdom has three parts. It is a king who rules over a people. A king, we've got the king here. His rule will be after his own heart, his laws of righteousness and justice. And he will rule over people who choose to be within his reign. Okay? So let's take a look really quick at four parts in these five verses that I see that are the four characteristics of the king. Number one, he will bear fruit. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. He will bear fruit according to righteousness and justice. Secondly, he will govern by the Spirit. He will govern by the Spirit. There are the seven spirits that are talked about there in verse 2. He will govern by the Spirit. Thirdly, he will delight in the fear of the Lord or Yahweh. He will delight in the fear of the God of the Bible. That's the next verse. And lastly, He will rule in righteousness and justice. And you can look at verses, the second half of verse 3 all the way through verse 5, and this is what it's saying. He will rule in righteousness and justice. Right relationship between God and mankind and creation and the activity that brings it about. Righteousness and justice. This is who our king will be. So this is the king, and we can see here his reign, his rule. Who are the people that submit under his rule? Well, this is where I want to do a little exercise with you. I want you guys to stay here. I don't want you to turn with me as I read these other passages. If you're taking notes, you can write down these passages. Write down the addresses. But I want you to stay here in Isaiah in 11. And I want you to look through this as I'm reading other parts of the New Testament. Because I want you to see that what a Christian is, is one who brings their life under the reign of the king. First, the branch of the king will bear fruit. If you want to write it down, you can write down John 15, verses 1 through 11. But I'm going to read it to you here. John 15, verses 1 through 11. Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root. So a branch that comes off of that, uh, that, that one, that ruler, will bear fruit. 
John 15, Jesus says this to his true disciples, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. In other words, live your life in me. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you think Jesus had Isaiah 11 on his mind? Maybe. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Does this sound like Isaiah a little bit? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He's talking about righteousness and justice, not getting our prosperity that we desire. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove, prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've heard pastors teach that Jesus was perfect in keeping the commandments so that I don't have to. Guys, that's, that's, that's just garbage. Jesus was perfect in keeping the commandments. You will not be. That does not remove the responsibility of as much as you can bringing your life under the reign of those commandments. Okay, next, the king and his kingdom will be governed by the Spirit. Isaiah 11 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Let me read to you from Galatians 5. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24. Paul says, Two Christians, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Why? Because Christians want to live under the reign of Jesus. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. See, Hans, we don't have to be under any rule. No, guys. You're not under the Mosaic law of sacrifice because Jesus has already sacrificed himself. He says, but if, you are, um, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not will not will not inherit the kingdom of God. I can, I can play around with some fornication. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those 
who belong to the anointed King Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The king and the kingdom will be governed by the Spirit. Third, the king and his kingdom will delight in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11 says, And the delight of the king, his delight, shall be in the fear of the Lord. Let me read to you from Acts 9.31. Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It multiplied. Lastly, the king will rule his kingdom in righteousness and justice. Isaiah says this, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Let me read to you two sections of Scripture. First, from the book of Matthew, Jesus' words himself. Matthew 5, starting in verse 3. Matthew 5, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I've actually heard a good, good pastor friend of mine say, I can't stand it when people say they try to live by the Sermon on the Mount because that's impossible, you know, we're all sinners, so. Oh, guys, this is what God calls us to live by. This is the law of a Christian given by our King here on this earth. Isaiah 11 finishes with, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Paul says to the Christian in Ephesians 6, in Ephesians 6, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Wow. And he finishes with, pray for me. The words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. What is the gospel? That the kingdom has come, for which I am an ambassador, one sent on the behalf of a king, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. My point is this. In the mind of Jesus, in the mind of Paul, in the mind of the church, to be a Christian 
is to bring your life under the reign of Jesus. You see, when Jesus came to the earth, he stated quite clearly that his kingdom had come. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. For all of you who read the news every day and read the rapture index to try and figure out when the kingdom of heaven is coming, pay attention. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In his death, Jesus atoned for the sins of the entire world, bringing us into right relationship with God, giving us righteousness, an alien righteousness. In his resurrection, Jesus conquered the kingdom of darkness and death and the sin that runs it. This is the gospel. And in so doing, he inaugurated his kingdom in which he reigns as king by his rules and law of righteousness and justice over those that are truly his. It's all grace, folks, because we don't deserve any of it. But those who accept his reign now will be part of his kingdom then. You know how I've said before, if you don't like hanging out with God's people here, what makes you think that you'll be ushered into heaven when you die, the place where all God's people dwell? If you can't make time for spending time in the kingdom of heaven here right now for an hour on a Sunday— once a week, what makes you think that God's going to go, oh yeah, your heart is totally for the kingdom. Come on into my heavenly abode. If your life is wrapped around only serving Jesus, following his people, being around his people, giving of your tithes and offerings, giving of your time, talents, and treasure when it's comfortable for you and makes sense to you, what makes you think he's going to say, yeah, enter into my kingdom. Boy, you really, yeah, you're, you're all about my kingdom. We cannot think that the gospel is about what happens when we die. Because guess what, guys? How you live your life is what ushers into eternity. And that is why I'm so thankful for William. If any of you know William, his life was one in which he had lots of bumpy roads, lots of ups and downs, lots of walking away from Christ. But in his last years, he knew that how you finish is more important than how you start. And he accepted the grace of Jesus to remove the sins that he had committed to atone for his shame, and he stood right here, or right there, right there, yeah, right there, every Sunday. Ben, you're our new will. Right there, every Sunday. And he praised Jesus, and he welcomed his word, and he told me time and time again, I have heard so many preachings, so many sermons from so many pastors, but I'm finally starting to understand the gospel. That's not because of me. It's not because this church is any better than any other church. It's because we stick to the word of God. And he had submitted his life under the reign of his king. And that's why I am assured I will see my friend at the resurrection. What does it mean to let God reign in your life? Well, first of all, it means he is your only king. Guys, I want to be clear. For all the political comments I make, you need to pray for our president. When he gets inaugurated, he is our president and we will honor him and we will respect him even when he's not respectful and we will pray for him just as we would have if someone else had taken office. But he is not our king. Our king is Jesus Christ. 
We pray for other leaders, but we only follow the lead of one king. What does it mean for us to follow under the reign of a king? It means to submit every area of your life to him and his laws of righteousness, justice, love, reconciliation, and all that goes with it. So if you are in sin, to submit to the reign of Christ is to stop. If you are in conflict, to submit to the reign of Christ is to have that hard conversation in which you are transparent and vulnerable and you take the hit if the other person is not and you go to them in reconciliation. And if you're on the receiving end of that conversation, to submit to the reign of Christ is to hear the person and not become defensive. These are some of the few things of what it means to be under the reign of Christ. What it means at the core is to learn his commandments and the way of life that is his kingdom, which means we devour the scriptures. You know what breaks my heart more than anything? It's when people leave their Bibles at this church and then I don't hear from them until the next Sunday. Why? I got it on my phone. Get familiar with your Bible, folks. You lose that, you lose your life. Let me tell you something really embarrassing. I went to meet with the pastor over at the Lutheran church. Guess who left his Bible in the office? (laughs) So I got home. This was when it was snowy. And I sat down and I went, oh, no, I forgot my Bible. (laughs) Like I almost started crying. And I get a phone call and Pastor Charles says, oh, by the way, you left your Bible in the office. And I was like, I know. I put the phone down, and for about five seconds, I went, you know, I, I could go get it tomorrow morning. And I thought, no, because I need it tonight to prepare for family worship. And this is not me being self-righteous, guys. This is literally what I thought. I need it to figure out what I'm reading for tonight for family worship. I need to do my devotional in the morning. I need to prepare for the teaching. on. I can't wait till tomorrow morning. I got to go get it. So I got back in my truck, drove all the way back downtown, terrible traffic with the snow, and got my Bible. Why? Because I can't live without it. Well, Hans, you probably have 20 Bibles in your office. Yeah, I got hundreds in my office. But this, this is my Bible. Because in it, I have the words of life. To whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Get to know God's word and devour it. Be taught by it. Be around God's people to be held accountable to it. And move forward each and every day, every moment, learning those areas of your life that are not in submission to him and consistently work at bringing them into submission. Not to inherit heaven by works, but because he's already given you heaven on earth. He's given you his son. He's given you his kingdom. He's given you his love. God has graciously asked you this day to come into his kingdom and let him reign in your life. And if you have declared that you are a Christian before, uh, don't gloss over this. I know far too many Christians who do not operate in the kingdom of Christ. God has graciously asked you this day to come into his kingdom and let him reign in your life. How will you respond? Will you continue to live this life as separate from the life to come, banking all of your eternal poker chips on one prayer? Or will you have the ears to hear that the kingdom of God is in the midst of us and start living as if that were true? To be a Christian is to bring your life under the reign of the Christ, the anointed king. 
And so the church for centuries has prayed the way that Christ taught us to pray. And I want us to listen to the words as we pray it together now. Say it with me, not after me. Say it with me as I say it. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen.